Welcome to the RevRec Gals podcast, where two consultants with over 30 years combined experience share stories about the implementation and challenges of revenue recognition accounting. I'm Susan. And I'm Natasha. And And we we are are the the RevRec Gals. Welcome to another episode of the RevRec Gals. Our topic for this episode is material rights. Natasha, give us some background on what material rights are. So this concept existed back in 605 as well. And under 606, they revised it, but in essence and in substance, I think it's largely the same. And I think the idea here is, is there anything in the contract that is you know, an optional purchase in the contract that truly represents such a significant discount that it's very, very likely they would take it, or maybe they've in essence, paid for it elsewhere. So maybe they're paying more somewhere else so that they can get this big, huge discount. You know, the classic and obvious situation is where maybe you have a huge upfront payment for a discounted monthly price. Sometimes you might see that at like a gym, for example, where it's like you have this huge upfront payment Although that there's upfront payment guidance about that, that would probably also be relevant, but outside the scope of today's conversation, the idea being that are you paying upfront or are you paying elsewhere to, for another performance obligation so that you have the right to a, a big discount on another performance obligation? And the idea is if you identify those, then you understand that maybe you need to allocate some of that contract price to that right. Even though there's no actual performance obligation being transferred as part of it, it's just an option to purchase something. If it's material enough, if it represents enough of a discount, it could represent a material right, which would in and of itself require allocation to that material right. I think the first thing to point out here is you're providing the customer with an option. So for instance, if you have three years of support that they're paying for annually and they've committed to, that's not an option. If you have a one year and they have the option to renew for two years at X price, then you have to look at that to say, are we giving them a material right? It's such an interesting nuance because I think that you can frame a contract in a lot of different ways to in substance get to the same thing. So for example, you could have a three-year contract with a right to terminate after the first 12 months, or you could have a 12-month contract with a right to renew after the first 12 months. In substance, the same thing is going on. And so being able to identify, sometimes there's options that are kind of between the lines and trying to figure out what guidance you need to be thinking about can be difficult. And so material rights is one that I always have front of mind. And a lot of times there's no action, really. It's There's an option here and you can go through, you know, sort of the flow chart of decisions and figure out no accounting is necessary. But you have to think about it because every once in a while you do have something that would qualify as a material right. So first and foremost, to your point, it's recognizing options when they exist on contracts so that you know to even ask the question. And then you have to look at it to say, are they going to exercise the option? Because you may give them, maybe you have a five-year contract and you have a pricing for renewal five years down the line. But if your product life cycle is only maybe three years or five years, and you don't have a history of people renewing, then maybe the likelihood they're going to exercise that option doesn't exist. 
or it's very low. And so then you don't even have to worry about pricing that material right. Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, so when you go through the guidance and you think about, you know, how do you evaluate an option, you're looking at the price. Does the price of the option reflect standalone selling price for that good or service? Well, if you have an option that people don't generally exercise, then what is the price really? No one else is really buying it. There's not a lot of value. I think that's a great point. And also just like a a practical one too. If it were such a great deal, such a great discount, would no one take it? If it's so good, people are going to keep exercising it. And it's not a question of if, it's more a question of when. But then also you have to look at, and this is where I think it gets tricky, is the additional discount material. So if you're already giving them a 20% discount and you're moving to 25%, that may not be material. It may be even within your SSP range, but even if it's a little outside, is it a material difference? I I think it's a great point, just kind of using common sense. And what's the substance of what's going on? Is this customer getting a heavier discount on everything? Is it outside of the norm for that particular customer? The guidance talks about, is the discount incremental to what the price is typically offered to similarly situated customers? Now, SSP in theory is stratified by similar customers, uh, similar products, similar situations, ultimately. But you might not have the appropriate level of granularity in your SSP to address material rights because they're looking for different things. SSP is saying, hey, what do you normally sell this for? You have to have a certain amount of volume in order to do an SSP. You can't base your SSP generally on three or four contracts. In contrast with the material rate, I think you have to look at the contract specifically. What are the circumstances in this contract? What's going on here? What do similarly situated customers mean? What do they have in common? Are there other customers out there that are getting a similar price? And so I think it's really important to maybe increase the level of judgment and subjectiveness that goes into material rights in a way that is different when we talk about SSP for allocation purposes. Your comment about classic customer is where I think a lot of this comes in, especially what I see is when you have resellers with volume discounts, or maybe it's not even a specific volume discount so much as if you sell 2000 units, starting with 2001, you get an additional 5%. So you have to step back and say, if another customer similar to this customer came in and bought 2001 units, would I give them this incremental discount, this incremental maybe 5%? If the answer is yes, then you don't have a material right because you have comparable customers who would get similar discounts. So that's where you have to step back and say, take this contract away. If I only gave them the option at that time, would other customers get a similar right? A big example I think of with that one is when retailers have these bounce back coupons. And a bounce back coupon is where you go in and you buy it and they say, here's a coupon. If you come back in two weeks, we'll give you 60% off one item. Well, if you hadn't bought on that day and you didn't get that coupon in two weeks, would you get 60% off one item? Probably not. A person walking in the door may get the right to 20% off. So now you have this 40% difference between what an average person coming off the street on that day would get versus you because you made that purchase. So these now two 
tie together and you have to say, okay, I have a 40% difference. What's the value of that? And what's my likelihood they're going to exercise it? I, I love that example. I've always sort of, I've never worked for a retail company on this topic. And I think it's so interesting because I, I remember years ago, I used to shop a lot at Gap and they'd have Gap Cash or something like that, where you, if you spent a certain amount during certain periods of time, they'd give you this, these little, it looks like a little check that you could use just at Gap. And it was such a good deal that you, or at least for me, you'd almost always make a point of going back in to spend your gap cash. And to your point, it's the likelihood of someone coming in and how do you assess that? And how does that go into how you value that option? Because if it's enough to compel people to come in at that kind of rate, that's something you have to account for. I have worked for companies that sell commodities and retail. And what I typically see is they'll do the expedient where they have a portfolio method. And they will look at it and say, on average, our customer buys X percentage and X percentage of customers will redeem these coupons. And then they'll continue a trend to assess each quarter how much they need to adjust their reserves. And I think what what that brings up for me is the idea that this can look very different for different companies. Before you're talking about volume-based discounts and where I've seen that come into play is maybe you have a one or two or handful of really big customers and ultimately they get pricing that's way beyond any other customer because their volume is so high and maybe they're a strategic customer. And so they get bigger discounts and that makes sense. And so evaluating that on a one-off basis and really doing an in-depth analysis and coming to a conclusion makes sense because you have a handful of them. But in this other scenario, this is something that you're doing all the time. The volume is very high and doing that kind of assessment for each and every one doesn't make sense. You would treat it very differently and you would approach it very differently and say, okay, how can I manage this? How can I account for this? You might assess it as a program. So you assess the program and the program pricing and you do that assessment once, you document it once, but then you account for all of these transactions together. And I think that's where you really have to think operationally and practically. Are you in a situation where you have to evaluate on a one-off basis or are you in a situation where you can evaluate an entire program and then account for it all together as a portfolio? Yeah, other ways I've seen people account for material rights is in the example of the one year of service and then two year renewals is if it is deemed to be a material right and they're likely to exercise it, especially in the case of services where it's recognized ratably, they'll take the combined value of the three years and recognize them evenly over the three years. So what you're effectively doing is taking money out of the first year and moving it into years two and three. So that's in a situation where you have a right to renew at a discounted rate? Yeah. In this example, most customers had a history of renewing at least three to five years. So there was a very strong reason to believe they would. If for some reason they didn't, then at that time where the option expired, you would take the remaining revenue lump sum. No, it's a great point. And I think this is why a lot of revenue accountants, they hear material rates and want to run the other direction, or maybe some people enjoy it. I personally, oh no, get rid of the material rates. We don't need that in our contract because it can be a lot to manage, a lot to track, and ultimately you're estimating. And so you don't know what 
actually is going to happen. You can only guess what's going to happen. Hopefully you guess relatively close and it's an educated guess that feels more or less accurate because you need to, right? You can't be having huge swings in your financials. Nonetheless, it's an estimate. You need to hold its hand and every quarter you need to reevaluate it and you need to assess it and you need to track which options have expired, which ones are still out there, how much are they worth still, and make sure that that's reflected in your reserves, reflected in your revenue, et cetera. And it's really tough because I see contracts where they have almost an open-ended material right. So they'll say every year of the contract, you can have two days of on-site training. So now, especially if you have an evergreen or auto-renewing contract, how do you estimate what the value is for that right? Or do you just every year set aside some money knowing, you know, out of the money they're paying that year? It does get very, very complicated. This is another way to highlight how the guidance is so intertwined because ultimately, is it a performance obligation or is it an option that needs to be evaluated for material right to figure out if it's a performance obligation? You could include an annual training and you have a program that goes ahead and schedules and delivers that free annual training, in which case you have a performance obligation. In contrast, you could have at the customer's option, they can request a training that's free, but it doesn't get delivered annually unless the customer actually asks for it. That's actually different. It's not like you have a performance obligation that you will deliver. Therefore, you should allocate revenue to it and recognize it once delivered or whatever the pattern of control being transferred. But the customer has an option to receive these services and they may or may not take you up on that. In which case, it's a completely different story. Now you're in option land. Now you have to evaluate to see if it's a material right. And then go through that exercise of estimating how often will it be exercised and what is it worth? If you're lucky, it's a low dollar value item and you can potentially either write it off as immaterial or just deal with it as they exercise the option. Hopefully it's immaterial and you don't have to worry about it. You know, I think of Carta. They have subscriptions. Within their subscriptions, they offer 409A evaluations. I would imagine most people actually exercise their right to get a 409A evaluation. What's a 409A evaluation? It's an evaluation for stock-based compensation that you have to do that sort of provides a fair value for tax purposes so that when we're determining what the exercise or the strike price is, for stock-based compensation, you use a 409A to value it. It's just a required accounting valuation report that many companies require. And when you subscribe to the CARTA platform, you are eligible for 409A once a year. The funny part is, is you're eligible once a year and, or if you have a material event happen that would change your valuation, you could get a second one. It's an optional service that you can request To a certain extent, you could go to any CPA firm that provides a service and purchase it separately. It does have standalone value outside of their subscription. And most people probably use it once because if you're signing up for the Carta platform, in all likelihood, you require it. Maybe people pay for it separately. But I'm curious if they go through the exercise of figuring out how many people do it twice. How often are people taking advantage of the fact that they get an additional free 409A. 
honestly, for small startups, when they're going through the calculation of, does this service make sense for me? The fact that it includes a 409A that you would otherwise pay for a service outside of Carta definitely has value. It would be interesting to see how they do that. Maybe maybe we can track down a special guest. All right. So we've talked about volume pricing. We've talked about sort of loyalty and reward programs. Can we talk a little bit more about how you would do the portfolio for the mechanic? It's interesting because there's so many different loyalty and reward situations. You can get, you know, the bounce back that I talked about. This could also be your airline points and accounting for those. Talking about how to the portfolio method, normally what I see is they'll estimate how many of these coupons they're going to give out, first of all. So what is their estimated volume? And then you have to look at what is your incremental discount? What is going to be your estimated average purchase using this coupon? So if you're giving them 60% off versus 20%, they're probably going to try to find a higher value item to purchase. So it may be a little higher than your average sales dollar. And then what percentage of people are actually going to use that coupon and come back in? One thing I find is if it's a coupon that you're going to get somewhat regularly, people may not be as inclined to come back and use it. If you're doing it like during the holidays, you're probably going to be driving much more business because people are out shopping and they're going to use it. So you have to really look at your trends and think about much more than what is my average selling price and my percentages. It's it's also what time of year, especially for retail where things get much busier before school or during the holidays. You know, it's a great point because I think back to this Bed Bath & Beyond coupons. Everyone had a pile of them in their car, the 20% off. And then the real gold was when you get the $5 off one. In my mind, that almost got to the point where it felt like their prices were just 20% off. It was the odd scenario where you actually paid full price or it was such a low dollar value. It wasn't worth going back because you forgot coupon or whatever the case might be. But if you walked into Bed Bath & Beyond with the intention of making a $100 purchase, you usually had that coupon in hand. If you didn't have one yourself, you talked to a neighbor or friend and you got one before you left. So I think that's a great point of how frequent do these coupons or deals run and how does that impact the calculation that you do based on the likelihood. And and I love that point about you can't just use your average transaction price because that's not going to work. If you shop at a place and you normally spend $100, well, when you have that discount, it's not like you're going to go in and be like, oh, I'm going to get it for the hundred. It's like, no, I've been eyeing that thing that was 200. And now that I have this coupon, I'm going to go in and buy that thing instead. Right. And then now you're below your $100 threshold that you normally spend. It's almost as if you need like behavioral scientists helping you (laughs) figure out. And I guess that's what, you know, part of the marketing team, uh, you know, figuring out the psychology that goes into purchasing decisions and what they expect. You know, I haven't worked in a retail environment on material rights. Where I've seen this is with a client who had high volume transactions, relatively low dollar value. So there was huge amounts of volume. And when they rolled out a particular program, it was with a strategic initiative in mind around how they were selling their products and what products they wanted to promote. And when we did this, we had extensive conversations with the team that was making that choice. They said, this is the behavior we're trying to drive. This is what we expect. 
here's the model that we've been working on, on the number of customers that would be eligible, the number of customers that we expect. And so they've already done a lot of that analysis and they understand the customers and the potential purchasing patterns better than most accountants. And so being able to leverage that information not only can hopefully get you to a a closer number, but it gives you a basis for coming up with that estimate because you can change an estimate. Changing estimates are allowed, but you have to be able to tell a story of why or how. And so being able to provide a reasonable story of, hey, this is the information I had on day one when I had to make this estimate and account for it. And being able to tell the story with that cross-functional team allows you to support that. And even if 12 months later, you have to reevaluate that estimate because of a change in circumstances, maybe the promotion went much better than you expected. Maybe it didn't. And being able to look back and say, hey, we did the best we could with the information that we had at that time. This is a change in estimate, not an error, because those are very different things. An error implies you made a mistake. You did something wrong. But if you used all the information available to you and you made a legitimate, reasonable estimate, then it's a change in estimate. And that has a very different qualitative flavor to it. The numbers might be the same, but the qualitative way that that is received by all parties involved is very different. So having that documentation and support and going through the thought process is important. And I don't want to like underscore how important the number is. I mean, you want to get to the reasonable number. But in my mind, it's more about going through the exercise thoughtfully and documenting it. That is essentially a security blanket for us accountants making estimates. Well, and I think that's the basis of 606 versus 605. It is principles-based. So what are the principles against which you are using to make your estimate? And giving that story to the auditors to say, this is what makes sense for us. And this is where we're going and why. I was just talking to another CPA the other day, and we were talking about how accounting is a lot more creative than you think it will be before you get into accounting. I was showing with some prospective accountants. (laughs) You don't want to get into quote unquote creative accounting where we're talking about fraud, we're talking about negligence, we're talking about, yeah, that's a different kind of creative accounting. But truly, it's a lot more qualitative and subjective. There are areas where you really have to make judgment calls and you really have to do the work to unwind what's really going on here. What's the economics that I'm trying to capture in my financial statements? And how do I do that with integrity? But also, how do I do it in a way that best represents the economics? And that often requires creative thinking of, well, what if we do it this way? What if we do it that way? How do we come up with a solution? How do we problem solve? How can we look at this in a way that's practical from an operations perspective and in line with the guidance and technically sound? And how do we communicate that and convey that not only to our stakeholders, but to our auditors as well? Because ultimately you want to recognize revenue when you deliver the products and you want to allocate the revenue appropriately to those deliverables. That's what you're trying to do. So really understanding what are you going to deliver and when, and whether there's a likelihood that you won't be required to deliver it or not is where these material rights come in. That's a great way of putting it. And it sort of brings it back to the high level of what are you delivering and when that's what revenue is at a very high level. And 
the essence of material rights is exactly that. What might you be paying for one place that is showing up in another place? And how do you make sure to reflect that? If these options are going to be exercised, how do we make sure that there's the appropriate amount of revenue for when they do get exercised? Developing your story behind your numbers and doing the best you can to get to what is the economics of the transaction. People don't think of accounting as storytelling, but I've realized more and more that the numbers tell a story and it's our job as accountants to make sure it's telling an accurate story and that we're providing the appropriate context and evaluating all of the factors to make sure that that story is is true to what's going on. So storytelling it is. This concludes our episode. Stay tuned bi-weekly as we talk all things revenue recognition. You can be notified of new episodes and other information by following us on LinkedIn. Feedback and topic suggestions are always welcome through LinkedIn or by emailing us at revretgals at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. The examples discussed are based on specific company dynamics. Check in with your auditors before making changes to your current processes. Specializing in revenue recognition may result in employment for life. Please consult your friends and family before pursuing this career.